at 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we were previously, and we're reading down to verse 5, and then picking up again in verse 8, and reading down to verse 9. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs, and lying wonders. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lovely evening in which we might come out midweek and gather together as a company of your people around your word. And Lord, we are glad tonight that we have in our possession the word of God. And we have that which we know is perfect revelation, that it is inspired of thee, that it's infallible in everything that it says. It's inerrant, it's without any mistake whatsoever. And Lord, that everything that it says pertaining to the future will surely come to pass. Father, we pray tonight that you would bless us as we uh, think about these scriptures we've just read. Lord, open them up to us. Help us to understand them. Help us to appreciate their import uh, both to the church at Thessalonica and also to our own selves living in this present age. So, Father, we just pray that your uh, blessing rest upon us. Use this time for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you'll recall the last time we were together in 2 Thessalonians that we said owing to the persecution the Thessalonian church was experiencing, many within that church had been convinced by false prophets and by false preaching and by false penmanship that they were in fact in the midst of the tribulation period and they were suffering the consequences of being in the day of Christ. Now this teaching we read in verse 2 had shaken them to their core, shaken them in mind, troubled them. And so Paul couldn't allow that to to continue. And uh, he therefore in this second epistle is addressing some of these concerns. And he wants to convey to uh, the church of Thessalonica that their fears are unfounded. And he wants to reestablish them in those things that he has already uh, taught them. So Paul is writing to allay their fears here. And you'll remember that he's teaching that for them to be in the midst of tribulation, certain events had to happen. That there were certain precursors to the tribulation period. And the first of those we touched on uh, together last time when we spoke about the falling away. That that day shall not come except there come the falling away first. And we ascertained that this phrase is a reference uh, to the departure of the saints from the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Now we drew that conclusion, and just to revise briefly, we drew that conclusion on six premises. First of all, we thought about the verbal form of the word apostasia, translated falling away, and we saw that 12 out of 15 times it is used in the New Testament, it's referencing a departure from a particular location. Then secondly, we pointed out that there is not so much a a falling away as in a general apostasy, but there is a definite article in the Greek which talks about the falling away, the departure, a specific event. And then we made the point that this Greek word apostasia is never defined purely as religious apostasy. Then we made the point that the first five English translations of the Bible all translated this phrase with the word departing. That that day would not come except there comes a departing at first. And then uh, we pointed out that the uh, defection from the faith, which some take the falling away to refer to, makes no contextual sense because Paul has already highlighted that there has been at Thessalonica those who have departed from the faith, false prophets, false preachers, uh, false epistle writers. And so in that respect, to say to them, well, you know, you're not in the tribulation because to be in the tribulation, there has to be a defection from the faith. Well, there was a defection from the faith already. So that would make no sense contextually. And then Paul in Second Timothy chapter, or First Timothy chapter four, sorry, and the first one felt the need to qualify uh, this term when he used it. So he talked there about uh, in the last days some shall depart from the faith, and so he qualifies apostasy, which wouldn't be necessary if that word solely meant a departure from the faith. So such being the case. We saw that in order for the tribulation to begin, the rapture, the departure, must come first. Then what? Well, then we expect the rise of Antichrist. That's the the order of things as Scripture reveals it. There's a future figure central to global governance who's yet to appear. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in verse 3 at the latter end. He says, except there come a falling away first, And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. So here's the second precursor uh, to the beginning of the tribulation period. And that is the day of Christ must reveal the Antichrist. The Antichrist is is discovered or uncovered during the tribulation uh, period. So this is the next identifying mark of that period. And uh, Paul talks here about a man of sin or the man of of sin, And this figure has been variously identified over the years, uh, usually with uh, great political figures, the Emperor Nero, uh, the Roman Empire, even the papal system. If you uh, consider the preface to our own King James uh, Bible in the uh, third paragraph, if you take the time to go and read there, it talks about the translation of the Bible has given such a blow onto that man of sin as will not be healed. And that's a reference to uh, the Pope rather 
parallel than to a future uh, political figure in the form of Antichrist. Uh, Leon Morris uh, says this, All attempts to equate the man of lawlessness with historical personages break down on the fact that Paul was speaking of someone who would appear only at the end of the age. The man of lawlessness is an eschatological figure, an eschatological personage. So if Christ is the man of sorrows, Antichrist is the man of sin. Some translations render him as the man of lawlessness, but that's unnecessary because sin is by definition lawlessness. Uh, But, uh, you know, whatever you want to call him, man of sin, man of lawlessness, you know, there are various titles that he's given in Scripture. We want to look at some of those. Uh, He's called the the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. And verse 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23, uh, he's called uh, the prince that shall come in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Daniel eleven thirty six calls him the king who shall do according to his will. Uh, Zechariah chapter 11 speaks of him as the foolish shepherd. Uh, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, we see the term the son of perdition. Uh, also the wicked one or the lawless one referenced in verse 8 where he's called that wicked or that wicked one. And then Revelation 6.2 speaks of him as the white horseman of the apocalypse. When people get into Revelation chapter 6, they often mistake the white horseman for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not the Lord Jesus Christ who's appearing. That is Antichrist in Revelation chapter 6. And then in Revelation 13, he is consistently referred to as the beast. So we think about this term, the man of sin. That man of sin must be revealed, says Paul. And and that term, the man of sin, is not really a proper name as such for the Antichrist, but it's a characterization. He is the very embodiment of sin. Uh, He's a man of evil character. There is nothing redeeming about him. And he has to be revealed. And the, the interesting thing about that word is it's the same word that translates is concerning the revelation of Christ. Uh, it's apocalypto, the apocalypse, the, the, re, the revealing of Christ. And so just as the Lord Jesus is to be revealed at a definite time, so too Antichrist is to be revealed at a particular time. Satan's man must first be revealed before you can say you are in tribulation. Now that's important because these Thessalonian believers were concerned that they were in tribulation. Did they have any indication that the Antichrist was exercising his reign? None whatsoever. And again, you bring that into the modern age and so many Christians got themselves into a tizzy during the pandemic believing that we were in the tribulation. Well, where was the Antichrist? He wasn't found during those two years of of lockdowns on and off. And so there was clearly a misunderstanding or, or, or ignorance of the scripture in that respect. And, and yet Paul's very clear that when the Antichrist appears, then you shall know you're in tribulation. That day shall not come except there come uh, the falling way first and that man of sin be revealed. Now, let me give you a word of caution here. A lot of Christians spend a lot of time and energy trying to discover who the Antichrist is. And invariably they pinpoint particular world leaders 
or political figures or prominent individuals in society. Uh, But here's the thing, friends. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to look for the Antichrist. Nowhere. It tells us we're to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be anticipating his arrival. We're to be concerned with him, not with Satan's man, but with God's man. And any effort to identify the man of sin is futile, given that he will not be revealed until the tribulation period. So nobody knows who the Antichrist is. You know, as long as I have been a Christian, I mean, I could probably give you a list the length of my arm of potential candidates for Antichrist that I've heard over the years, going back to Henry Kissinger, the American ambassador back in the 1980s, uh, all the way through, you know, Ian Paisley was one time, one time uh, mooted as an Antichrist. Uh, even Jerry Adams was one time mooted as an Antichrist. The Pope is always mooted as an Antichrist. Uh, you know, President Obama, uh, President Bush, President Trump, uh, all of the American presidents pretty much are usually uh, suspected as antichrists uh, for some reason or other. <laughs> and so, you know, all of that's been wrong. And it's a waste of your time and of your effort and of your energy. We're to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the church departs, the world will be seeking a man. It will seek a figurehead. It will seek someone to get them out of the hour of trouble in which they find themselves. You know, uh, Charles Swindoll says this. He says, this man is yet to be revealed and won't be until the dark age of apostasy engulfs the world. This man will emerge after the rapture, probably to calm down, calm the chaotic waters troubled by the unexplained departure of many Christians. He will be primed and ready to speak. He will stand before not only a nation, but a world and win their approval. Like Hitler, he will emerge on a scene of such political and economic chaos that the people will see him as a man with vision, with pragmatic answers and power to unite the world. And there's no doubt that that is true. But as far as God's word is concerned, this man is anything but a saviour. He is, notice in verse 3, the son of perdition. Now, this is a Hebrew idiom by which a person is identified with a particular quality or characteristic. So, for example, you read in Scripture, uh, Luke 10, about one who is the son of peace. And uh, in Mark's Gospel, we talk about uh, James and John as the sons of thunder. Uh, Barnabas is the son of consolation. Uh, those people were identified with those particular characteristics and qualities. But the Antichrist is the son of perdition, the son of ruination, the son of destruction. And so this is a term that applies not just to him, but also to Judas. If you look in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 12. Of course, here's the Lord Jesus in the midst of his high priestly prayer as he's preparing for Calvary in chapter 12, chapter 17, verse 12. He says to his father, while I was with them in the world, the disciples, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And here's one of the most reassuring lines in all of the word of God. 
And none of them is lost. You know, the Lord's never lost any of his own sheep. None of them is lost. But the son of perdition, who was never saved to begin with, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that's a reference to Judas Iscariot. So this term marks a certain doom. It, it's, it uh, underscores the eternal ruination of the one who harbors or holds this particular title. And Paul wants to assure the Thessalonians that Satan's man will not prevail, that God will deal with him, that he has fallen so completely under the power of damnation that he's absolutely identified with it. Damnation belongs to him by nature. It is his by right. Now in verse 4, we see both his aim and his claim. Notice what it says. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. That's his aim. What's his claim? So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now look at the first part of that verse. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. That's his aim. He's opposed to the rule of God upon the earth. In fact, the phrase means that he is adverse toward God. And of course, we know that the name Satan means adversary. But it's not just, and I want you to get this, it's not just the God of the Bible that he's opposed to, but the very notion of God in any form whatsoever. Notice how carefully Paul words this. He doesn't say, who opposeth and exalteth himself above God, but who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now that's an important distinction. He's opposed to all that is, uh, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. It was very interesting as we progress along the timeline of history, we are seeing in this present period a great rise in militant atheism. And alongside that rise in, in militant atheism is a tremendous hostility toward anyone who is religious in any way. Not just Christians necessarily, of course Christians particularly, but others also are in the firing line of the atheist. And so uh, this is where the Antichrist comes in. You know, he is opposed to anything that identifies itself with God, whether it's the God of the Bible or the God of Islam or the gods of Hinduism or any other so-called. You see, he's not just anti-Christian, he is anti-theistic. He's atheistic. The Antichrist, and I want you to get this, will be an atheist. Now some people say, well, won't he be a Jew? Yes, he more than likely is going to be a Jew. But understand, many, many Jews are atheists. And very adamant atheists. So you go into the book of Daniel 11 and 37, it says this concerning him, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, that intimates that he may be Jewish, nor regard, and this notice says, any God. So he not only denies the God of his fathers, the God of the Bible, but he defies any God. For he shall magnify himself 
above all. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 4. For having opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God and anything that is worshipped, then he determines that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Now there's his claim. He's showing himself that he is God. Uh, Look with me in Daniel chapter 11 for a moment. The book of Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. I want you uh, to see what Daniel has to say about this very topic. Daniel 11.36 says, And the king shall do according to his will. That's a reference to the Antichrist. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. That's exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2. And shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Notice he shall magnify himself above every god, but in particular he's going to focus his ire upon the god of gods. And he himself is going to claim to be god. He is magnifying himself above all who are called uh, god, so that he presents himself as god in the temple of god. You know, when we were on holiday last week in uh, Corfu, uh, Hayes and I went out to the old town of Corfu and we were, we were shopping. I should say we were shopping. She was shopping. I was just walking behind. But anyway, we were walking. I was walking along there, you know, looking around and a t-shirt caught my eye and I pointed it out to Hazel and it said this on the t-shirt. I used to be an atheist until I realized that I am God. That's what it said on the t-shirt. Now, some of you are shaking your head going, that's terrible. And it is terrible, but understand that is the natural outcome of atheism. If you deny God, you become God. You are God. And that's essentially what atheism and humanism is about. It's about deifying man. If we eliminate God from our thinking, we become God. And was this not Satan's lie from the very beginning? Remember what he said to Eve in the garden. He says, For God knoweth that in the day you eat thereof of the fruit, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. And that's where we're at. Man believes he's a god. And you know, there's, there's lots of ways in which we might perhaps exemplify that. But for me personally, nothing says more about man's... Um, man's arrogant view of himself and and, and rather puffed up view of himself than the notion that he can somehow control the weather systems of this world. That he's in charge of the planet. (laughs) I mean, what kind of nonsense is this? This is like an ant believing it's in charge of your garden. That's That's the only analogy I can make. You know, he's a nothing, he's a little pipsqueak. You know, we're nobodies. And yet, here we are believing that we have such power that we can control the weather systems of the world, that we can prevent the world from destruction, that we can, uh, we can progress the world far beyond anything that the, the Bible would allow us to do. Uh, you know, that, if that's not the, the whole outcome of atheism, I don't know what is. So here's Satan's man. And, and Satan historically has always been 
an imitator of God. You go back to Isaiah 14 and 14, he says, I will be like the Most High. He's always sought to mimic God, to counterfeit God. And one writer says of the Antichrist here that he is Satan's Messiah, an infernal caricature of the true Messiah. That's interesting if you were to look, and we will look and see some of the similarities between Christ and Antichrist. Notice that Christ, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, is the one who is and was and is to come. But Antichrist, according to Revelation 17, is the one who was and is not and shall ascend. Similar language. The Lord Jesus, of course, we know, conducted a a three-year ministry, whereas Antichrist will conduct a three-year monarchy or three-and-a-half-year monarchy. The Lord Jesus is seen in Matthew 25, 13 as the coming one. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, we see that the Antichrist is a coming one. In uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, the Lord Jesus is the church's hope. But in Revelation 13, Antichrist is seen as the world's hope. In Daniel chapter 8, the Lord Jesus is viewed as the prince of princes. But in Daniel 9, Satan's man is seen as the coming prince. In Revelation 19, the Lord Jesus is bestowed with many diadems. In Revelation 13, 1, the beast is given ten diadems. We know the Lord Jesus has a bride, the new Jerusalem. But Satan also has a bride, and the Antichrist has a bride, in mystery Babylon. The Lord Jesus, we know, was indwelt by the Spirit of God, John 3, 34. Satan's man will be indwelt by his spirit, Revelation 13 and 2. The Lord Jesus was a slain man, risen on the third day. Revelation 13, we find that the beast is also slain and is raised. And we know that the Lord Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, whereas Antichrist is Satan manifest in the flesh. And you can see in those parallels how it is he's going to pull the wool over the eyes of lost men. That they're actually going to think that the one that they're giving their loyalty to is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the saviour of men. That he is God. His pride knows no limit. His arrogance is absolutely breathtaking. His conceit is unimaginable. He's the consummate atheist who having supposedly rid the world of God deifies himself and declares himself to be God. Now is there anybody on the world scene today who fits those criteria? No. What does that tell you? It tells you you're not in the tribulation. It tells you you're living before the tribulation. And so you can put to bed any notion that somehow or other you missed the rapture. Or that you're subject to, uh, to the day of Jacob, the time of Jacob's trouble. Then notice he says there at the end of verse 4. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God. Now, I'm going to make a statement of the obvious. If he's sitting in the temple of God, it stands to reason there has to be a temple for him to sit in. You don't want to sit in, a, in an imaginary temple. He's sitting in a physical temple. There's going to be a third temple that will be built 
by the time of these events. And again, we ask ourselves a simple question. Is there a temple right now in Jerusalem? No, there is not. What does that tell you? It tells you you're not in the tribulation or at this point even close to tribulation necessarily. So if he sits in the temple, it stands to reason this temple has to be erected. Now the first temple was built by Solomon and it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. The second temple was built under the governance of Zerubbabel. And uh, he built that in, in 516 uh, BC and it was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus and his army. So uh, the, the temple of Jesus' day was really just a, an extension of the temple, uh, the, or, uh, sorry, the temple of Jesus' day was an extension of Zerubbabel's temple that was constructed and added to by Herod. And really he built it as a monument to his own greatness. So there's been two temples to this point, and we're now awaiting the building of a third temple. Now this idea of a third temple is the Jewish dream. The Jews are longing for the building of a temple. I mean, you don't have to be around Jews in Israel or Jews in general to discover that they desire for a temple to be built in Jerusalem. That's the whole purpose of the Temple Mount Faithful in Jerusalem. That's the purpose of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Even as I'm preaching to you tonight, there are Jews in Jerusalem who right now are working as masons and preparing the stones to be erected on the Temple Mount site and to have the temple back in situ. They're doing that even now. They have all of the furniture prepared. They have all of their priests trained. They have all of the robes made. They're ready to go. Make no mistake about it. They are ready to go. And actually, this is not some modern um, you know, heresy that I'm presenting you with. This is not some new notion that uh, I came up with or that we came up with or John uh, Darby came up with or somebody else came up with. Listen, here's the words of Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus, one of the uh, early church fathers, he's writing now in the second century and he says this, but when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. Now ask yourself a question. If he's writing in the second century, is there at that point a temple in Jerusalem? No. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There's just a flat plateau where the temple used to be. So here comes this, uh, this uh, preacher uh, who's very close to the time of the apostles. And he tells us that there's got to be a temple for the Antichrist to sit in. And he says, And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him to the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. Now that's what we believe. People say, oh, you know, uh, premillennialism and, and teaching the rapture, it's all new stuff. It's as new as Irenaeus. This is not new stuff. This goes back to the earliest days of the church. Uh, uh, if you discount the Bible itself, of course, we would say it goes right back to the Bible itself. But if you discount the Bible itself, you're going back to the very earliest days of the church here. Now, let me say to you that the, the whole temple campus doesn't necessarily have to be erected for this to happen. Uh, you know, there, there certainly needs to be an erection of the holy place. 
of the inner sanctum of the, of the temple structure. You know, the word temple there is the Greek word naos. And it refers to the holy place or to the holy of holies. So when sometimes people think about the temple, they're thinking about the, the outer courts and all of the rooms that went around it and all the, all the peripheries that go with the temple of Jesus' day. And they're saying, well, all that's got to be put in. No, all they've got to do is basically build the holy of holies and the holy place and they're ready to go. And that's not a very big structure. That won't take very long at all. And certainly in a modern world with all the machinery that we have at hand, that can be done very quickly. Now it's this desecration of the temple, or more specifically the holy place, that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation, which is really the turning point of the great tribulation, the moment from which the faithful believing Jews are taught that they should flee Judea. Jesus said this, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now the fact was that the Thessalonians had been taught these things and taught them well. Look at verse 5. He says, Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. You know, I, I can almost sense the pastor's frustration there you know every pastor has those moments when he thinks didn't I teach you that <laughs> you know I, I I preached that you know uh, the, the worst is when you have a guest speaker come in and he preaches on the same thing that you preached on the previous week and somebody says that was great I've never heard that before that is uh, that is such an irritant to pastors I can tell you uh, but I'm glad that at least Paul had that same irritation and when he says you don't remember when I was with you I told you these things I, I preached this to you. I, I taught you this. How come you've forgotten it? And then verses 8 and 9, he reveals a few more details concerning the reign of Antichrist. He says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs, and lying wonders. Now, verse 8 tells us he shall not succeed, but his reign will come to an end at the return of Christ. Isaiah eleven four says that the Lord, with the breath of his lips, shall slay the wicked. And that's exactly what we find in Revelation 19. Uh, and at verse 20, as the Lord Jesus comes, it says, The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with a brimstone. The first nine describes him as uh, the one who is marked by signs and wonders. Notice it says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And I, I find this a, you know, a, a remarkable statement given where we are at today in Christendom. You know, there are, there are professing Christians, the length and breadth of this land, who are chasing signs and wonders. That's their, that's their primary currency. That's what they dabble in. That's what they deal in. That's what draws them. They go to meetings to see signs and wonders. 
And there's no accounting for them from the, uh, to the word of God. If you try to teach them from the word of God, you'll find these people are largely unteachable. They're convinced by supposed miracles, by signs of various sorts, by spurious powers. This is the currency of the modern church. What has happened is the church in this age, in this, at this point in church history, has substituted the plain word of God for the delights of signs and wonders. Uh, look in Revelation chapter 13 as we draw our thoughts to a close this evening. Revelation chapter 13. And I want to look at uh, verse 13. And of course it's dealing here with the beast and with his, uh, with his reign and his rule. In verse 13 it says, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all both small and great Rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. But how significant that is part and parcel of his setup. We see signs and wonders. Fire being called down from heaven. Images being able to uh, become animated and to move and to convince people that the beast is indeed some kind of divine uh, figure. You find this, these ideas not just in charismatic churches. You find it in pagan religions. You find these ideas in Roman Catholicism. You know, in Roman Catholicism... Uh, there's many people who will tell you they have seen statues move. They've seen statues cry. They've seen statues bleed. Uh, when I pastored in Dublin, the big statue of the day was the statue of Mary in Balance Spittle down in, in Cork, which was supposedly moving her head and uh, looking at people. And the people would go in busloads and they'd set out the driving rain, just stirring up at this statue hoping for it to move its head and wink at them or whatever it does then one night when everybody was gone some fella got up onto the side of the hilltop with a sledgehammer and he took the head clean off the statue of Mary and I thought well if she's a moving statue she could have at least ducked my friends folks are deceived by these things they're taken in by these things and, you know, I want, to, I want to discourage you from following after those who proclaim themselves to be, uh, be able to perform signs and wonders. Let us stick with the word of God. That's all we need. We don't need to be part of a circus. We don't need to be uh, deluded by smoke screens and, and all kinds of uh, fancy shenanigans that are going on on a platform. We just need to hear from the word of God. Of God. It's very striking that Paul says this mystery of iniquity doth already work there in verse 7 of the chapter. 
He says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. He tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in operation, although the figure of Antichrist is yet future and yet to be revealed. But isn't it interesting, as we, as we come to this point in history, that in the past 100 years, we have witnessed this growing apostasy among the churches, but also a corresponding interest in that which is said to be miraculous. So here we have the second precursor to the tribulation period. Paul tells the Thessalonians, listen, you're not in the tribulation period. If you're in the tribulation period, the departure has to happen first. And then secondly, the Antichrist has to appear and he has to be revealed. None of that is happening. Therefore, you're not in the tribulation. We're going to look at the third indicator that they were not in the, in, in the tribulation next time. And that is the withdrawal of God's Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next Wednesday evening. But we'll leave it there uh, for this evening.